This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Hey everyone, welcome back. Episode 20. We're so excited. I can't believe it's already been 20 episodes. It's unfortunately our first episode without Kevin, which is very sad, but he's moved to bigger and better things. I won't say moved on because he's still definitely part of this. He's just working nights right now. So Nick and I are doing our first solo episode without his support, but we're excited. We have a couple of great discussants here, so we'll let them introduce themselves. Hey, I'm Samira. I'm an M4, hopefully going into neuro. I'm Erin. I'm also an M4, hopefully going into pediatrics. Great. So, and this is Nick again here. Super excited to have both Samira and Aaron on. And also we have Dr. Abrams with us again. Thank you, Dr. Abrams, for sharing this case with us. This is a really interesting case. A lot to learn here. We will get started. Neuropediatrics case, right? (laughs) Exactly. That's why we selected you guys specifically for this case. (laughs) So yeah, can't wait to get, get into it. So I guess we can start off with the first aliquot. So the first aliquot here is a 74-year-old man who's our patient presenting with a lump in his neck for one month. This is, uh, this is the information we have here. I think it's really interesting initial complaint, something we haven't had on the show yet. Just based on this, either Aaron or Samira, where, what, what more do you want to know from this patient in order to kind of work out what we think could be going on here? I'd like to start getting a little more history on when he noticed the lump. Uh, I like the location is probably important. The size of it, uh, I think, just history on the patient itself or him or herself, himself. Also, for a lump, I like to know if it's painful or not. I think that leads me down different thought process. Awesome. I think that's a really good place to start. I feel like the classic teaching is, you know, every time you walk in, you see someone with the initial complaint, you always kind of start with the differential and and you're asking questions to kind of either lead you towards something, help narrow down the differential or just kind of, yeah, I guess, narrow things down. So what's the differential that you start with? I know this is very broad, but what are kind of the main things you think of for a patient coming in with a lump in their neck? Uh, I would think like a mass or a tumor or like lymphadenopathy would be the two things. The mass can be big reasons for there to be a mass in your neck that can be like thyroid, oral cancer or something like that. Or I could start naming random ones like Burkitt's lymphoma, I think like has a mass, not don't think it's likely, but I guess also like infectious stuff. Yeah, that's, that's great. You already, I mean, you already created buckets. So you, we already talked about neoplasm and you even named some specific like neoplastic processes that you had mentioned. And then also you talked about potential infectious causes and you even mentioned the thyroid. So something like with an, an organ or an, an anatomy in the neck. So already like a, a good kind of just broad overview. And so I'm looking at, now I'm looking at Aaron here and I'm saying, okay, so one of the, and you guys have talked about sort of the anatomical issues but I'm also sort of thinking about the age issues, right? And so if, if this was a three-year-old with a lump in their neck, you would think very differently. So the, it, so this is one of those places, I think, where, where age probably really matters, right? Because certainly, a, like I say, certainly like a teenager or something like that that came in with a lump in their neck, you, you, you again, as a pediatrician, would probably think very, very differently and that is we sort of go through the decades and make it into our 70s now. Some of the things that that kids have 
you know, adults don't have and some of the things adults have kids don't have. Yeah, definitely. Like when I first thought of this, my mind would think infectious in a younger kid, like mono EBV. I'm not thinking mono as much in a 74 year old man could be possible, but probably less likely. I think like knowing even like smoking history and stuff like that, that's for a 74 year old. There's a lot of processes that smoking can contribute to that could present in this as a lump in the neck. I think. Yeah, that's definitely huge in terms of social history. And then going back to the age as well. So like Aaron, you had mentioned in t- you were thinking more kind of infectious or inflammatory in, in a younger patient. And so, yeah, usually we think patients who are, you know, teenager, younger, it's usually going to be something along those lines or some kind of congenital origin. So obviously not the case in this patient, but things like branchial cleft cysts or like remnants of the thyroid gland, which can sometimes present not just in childhood, but maybe even in like teenage years after like respiratory infections and stuff. So that's something, but then as we get older, we kind of shift that in terms of a neck mass, we kind of shift it into thinking of malignancy, especially in patients who are older than 40. And so obviously it's not the most, there's a lot of, a lot of causes, but this is one of those things where it's in an older patient, that's always what we have to rule out until proven otherwise. And that's kind of a, a good diagnostic schema. So yeah, we talked about age and then also we talked about kind of how it's growing. Aaron, you mentioned time course. And then I think one of you guys had mentioned like pain and those things. So those are also something stuff that we'll learn as we kind of go through the aliquots. But I think so far we did a good job of teasing us out. Should we go to the second one, Megan? Aliquot number two, the lumps located on the front of his neck. He states there's redness overlying the lump, but this has not significantly changed recently. He denies pain or tenderness. He denies any other symptoms. He has no fevers, chills, malaise, fatigue, night sweats, or weight loss. His appetite is good. So with this new information, anything, does it point you towards anything, point you away from anything? What are you thinking? Whenever I hear non-tender, I think more malignancy versus infectious. I mean, he's not having any other symptoms to support really either infection, like with fever any like URI symptoms or weight loss to really support malignancy. So everything else was a little bland. Yeah, I agree. This is tough. Like the, you don't have the systemic symptoms, but then also, yeah, you were saying there's no pain or tenderness. So maybe you were expecting some of them. I guess location wise, it makes me think if it's like straight in the front of his neck, maybe that's not as lymphadenopathy or something. So same, another thing to point away from an infectious cause. Uh, I guess the thyroid is in the front, so maybe thyroid or I still think that there's probably some other contributors that could present as a mass in the front. Hopefully I'll think of some more with other aliquots. I think it's a really good example of a case that really requires you to do a good physical exam. I think like for shortness of breath and abdominal pain, you know, I feel like a lot of us have like a really good kind of schema in our heads of all the different things that can cause it and a really like systematic way of thinking through all of that. And it gets a little bit harder with stuff like this, when it's just like a lump in the neck and you don't routinely see people coming in just complaining of like a neck lump. So I like the way that you guys kind of thought about anatomy first. Like, first of all, what are the things that should be in the neck? Like the thyroid, the lymph nodes, something with like brachial cleft which aren't technically supposed to be there, but like sometimes are there. And then once you think of the things that are supposed to be there, is it 
you know, is it malignant? Is it just like a benign kind of growth of it? What are the different reasons that lymph nodes can be swollen? What are the different reasons that a thyroid would be palpable? And I think that that's kind of a good way to think through things. So we talked about how this could be the thyroid. Another possibility still is that it is a lymph node. In terms of things that would cause like lymph node swelling and adenopathy, do you guys have a good way of kind of thinking through that? I know you mentioned some of them already, but. I guess it depends on where exactly the lymph node is. Like if it's more anterior, posterior, cervical, obviously there are the infectious causes that we feel like may not apply, like strep or mono. Those would be like more draining, I guess. I want to say it's draining more the head versus like the super like clavicular one that's known for being, I think, gastric, gastric cancer. Yeah, that's the classic. Any sort of like intra-abdominal, sometimes like even intra-thoracic malignancy. So the classic teaching is that if you can feel them, it's probably not great for your patients. Anything else besides infections that you think of with lymphadenopathy? What I talked about, malignancy could be the cause. I think, I don't know specific examples, but I think some autoimmune conditions can also cause lymphadenopathy in maybe... I think also like reaction to certain medications or like allergic, sometimes like allergic or drug response might cause it. But I feel like malignancy and any kind of infection are the two main ones I think about. Yeah, it's really good. I think that never forgetting like the autoimmune causes and like when you think about what lymph nodes do, like they're just a cluster of inflammatory, like inflammatory cells. Basically, there's the B cells and the T cells and all that stuff we learned a while ago. So anything that's going to kind of cause your body to like ramp up its inflammatory response, whether that's infection, whether it's malignancy, whether it's your body acting against something that it's not supposed to and like an autoimmune disease, those are all reasons that it can be swollen. So we don't have an exact time course here, but this sounds to be more of like a subacute presentation. So in terms, I think time course too is a really good way to separate it out, like something acute, subacute, more chronic, I don't know, Dr. Abrams, if you know the exact amount of time that this patient had the next swelling for. I think, as it said in Aliquot 1, this was one month. One month. I, I want to go back and, and sort of echo some of the things that you guys have already said. And even though I'm an internist, I, I, I actually love anatomy. And so I, I you know, it, it, it's funny. We don't think of the neck that much, do we? It's like a neck. But- <laughs> And, and listen, I never took an ENT rotation. So you guys, if, if any of you have done that, you're 10 steps ahead of me. But but it's it's almost like there's spaces in the neck, right? So this is, a, this is kind of an anterior space. I think of this as kind of in the front V, which, which makes me think of certain things, obviously. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know where you guys are going to go with this, but you know, there's so many spaces, you know, once we peel the skin away, I can't tell you all the spaces that there are, except there's a ton of spaces in there. The other thing is, is sort of what Megan was just talking about. And that is that the tempo. So we talked about some of these pieces of the history that really guide us into places. So age puts us in a place, but, but tempo really puts us in a place also. And, and again, so you know, this is, and I and I think it, best we know. I I think you're right. I would place it in a subacute, but it's not acute. So that that's one thing we know. It's not acute. The other thing is, you know, we're relying on the patient at this time. So he's noticed for a month, and that means it's been there for a month or 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 sometime longer. And 
when, when you guys think about this and you say, huh, let's go back to, you know, infection, malignancy, things like that. And you say, okay, so, so, you know, what infections, if, if it's infection, what infections are subacute, which infections present acutely and what do they look like? And, and it's just a way to sort of, at least in my mind, sort of think about how you're going to organize your thoughts around this. So that that's all I have to say. I don't know if the two of you guys want to want to say anything or 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 as you know as these guys have already said you guys said right at the beginning the physical exam you know you'd say ninety percent of everything is history except for some cases where it's ninety percent physical and it maybe this is one of those cases maybe not too soon to tell. All right, you guys ready for the next aliquot? Do it. So past medical history, history of polymyalgia rheumatica, AFib, status post ablation, mitral valve repair, TB. In terms of the latter, he was diagnosed while on adalimumab, anti-TNF medication, and prednisone for his polymyalgia rheumatica, and the suspected exposure was thought to have occurred during a trip to Vietnam. He received a nine-month course of therapy. And then in terms of the medications he's on, he takes azetamide, apixaban, hydroxychloroquine, prednisone, zolpidem, and alandronic acid, which is bisphosphonate. Those are all the medications he's on. So anything, either past medical history or medication-wise, that sticks out to you? I think the immunocompromised state, right? Easy, like anti-TNF, the prednisone. Um, that makes me think that he's probably prone to some of the more rare causes of neck swelling. Um, his trip to Vietnam, always good to know travel history. Uh, it does add a little bit more to the differential. Like, I wasn't thinking as much about Burkitt's lymphoma, and I don't know if I still am, but maybe it's a little bit more back in than it was before. Yeah, I really like what you did there going through his med list. Like, okay, we have medication that could cause him to be a little bit immunosuppressed. And so even though we don't know all of the things that he's at risk for, at least we kind of have in the back of our head that we need to be looking for things that maybe we don't typically say, see in other patients that are not immunosuppressed. So I think that's a really good point. I don't think with any of his like AFib or mitral repair, you're probably not getting too much imaging on the neck area, but like if he was getting screenings for any of those, the radiation could put him at different risks for like different malignancies in that area. That's a really good thought too. I didn't consider that. And then what about the polymyalgia rheumatica? I think that's autoimmune And so if he has like one autoimmune disorder, he could be more likely to have another one as well. Exactly. Anything to add, Nick? When I was looking over this, you see the immunocompromised state in terms of the medications he's on, but also in terms of a history of tuberculosis, which is a disease that tends to happen in in immunocompromised people. And, and so I think that that in itself adds something additionally that not only is immuno immunocompromised, but he's also had infections, you know, that have been, you know, possibly due to immunocompromised. And then also the fact that he received a nine month course of therapy, you know, this could suggest that he's possibly like, you know, follows up well with medicine or, or that it's at least treated. I thought that that was at least relevant that, okay, this is, this has been treated. This is not just untreated tuberculosis. But but I, I thought that that was just kind of something else to add. But yeah, I think that in terms of past medical history and medications, definitely it definitely adds something to this to this and kind of broadens, I would say, our differential, but also kind of points it into a certain direction. 
Yeah, you'd put all the buckets on the table, right? Autoimmune, infectious, and and he's immunocompromised, so so he could have he could have malignancy. So they're all sit they're all sitting there in front of you still. It's just <laughs> sort of op- opened opened up the door to all of that. What a I think that's pick. a really good point too that I always forget. You think of like immunocompromised, you always kind of associate it being at risk for a lot of different infections, but. Sometimes we forget that they're also at risk for malignancy because your immune cells are all the time the ones that kind of take care of the malignant cells. So I think that's always a, a good point to bring up. Especially malignancies of the immune system, which happen to be in things like we've talked about, lymph nodes and, and all that. So, um, Yes, Samira, you hit the nail on the head when you start saying, oh, EBV-associated tumors uh, <laughs> and things like that. Yes, Absolutely. All right. So it sounds like we got a lot that's fair game right now. Let's move on to the next Aleph one. All right. So Aleph four, some vital signs and physical exam. So the blood pressure, 108 over 58, pulse 70, afebrile, respiratory rate 18, satting 99% on room air. Constitutionally, the patient's awake, alert, cooperative, and in no distress. Cardiovascular exam, clear to oscillation bilaterally, regular rate and rhythm, no murmurs. His abdomen exam was normal with no masses palpated, no hepatosplenomegaly. His extremities were normal with no palpable lymphadenopathy of the extremities, and his skin was otherwise normal aside from the neck exam, which we say for last year. So for our discussants, we actually have a picture of, of the exam is in addition to a description. And, and we'll put this on Twitter, the picture of the exam, so that for, for our discussants, you can actually look at it while you're listening to this, because I know you don't have the luxury of, of doing that on, on, on audio podcast. So we'll make sure to do that. But for you guys, the neck, there's marked swelling in the kind of right anterior neck, just lateral to the thyroid, measuring five centimeters by three centimeters. There's significant overlying erythema to the swelling. There's no fluctuance, didn't seem to be fixed. It did not feel warm. It was firm, but only minimally tender to palpation. So Aaron and Samira, we can now see this in front of us. We also have additional information here. What are your thoughts? And and is this kind of what you had pictured beforehand? I feel like I'm not sure what to do with the redness overlying it that would normally make me think more of an infectious process or is there some like cellulitis on top of something but I guess just based on the location thinking is there something growing off of the thyroid is it next to it like a parathyroid is it just in the space in front I'm not quite sure what to make of this right now I guess going back to the previous aliquot I think he was on a pixaban so I don't know if hematomas can just show up in the neck, but maybe a hematoma could present this way. It's not not very likely to be painful, but definitely can be red. Yeah, so that's a really good point. Always tying it back to like their meds and their past medical history. And I think just being thorough is so important. I remember I was listening to a morning report, I think on my EM rotation about a patient that got a compartment syndrome and their only risk factor was being on a blood thinner and they ended up just having a spontaneous bleed that led to a compartment syndrome and no one really suspected it because the patient had no trauma. So the blood thinners can do some sneaky stuff. So I think always just keeping that in the back of your head the same way that you keep like any sort of immunosuppressants, just kind of, I don't know, they can sneak up on you and do weird things. So 
I think that's really good that you brought that up. I think one of the things, at least that I often think of, and I can sort of reflect this back on you guys, is so often we focus on positives when we talk about physical exam or even history. And and sometimes some of the bigger clues come out of the pertinent negatives. And, I, and I'm kind of wondering what you guys think about what appears to be some of the pertinent negatives here. I thought it was relevant that he's like respirations are good. His O2 is good. It doesn't seem like this is compressing any of his like trachea or ability to breathe. Yeah, that's a really good point. You always want to, yeah, we love to get to the diagnosis, but the first question is always like, is this patient in imminent danger, especially with something in the neck? We'd hate for them to lose their airway while we're doing medicine stuff and just taking our sweet time, kind of thinking about what's going on. So that's a really good point. What about like the fever, blood pressure, pulse? Does that sway you towards or away anything from anything? The lack of fever, yeah. Sorry, the lack of fever. Yes, again, less likely to be something infectious for me if they otherwise seem a, they're afebrile, hemodynamically stable, more likely to be something I'd say that wouldn't contribute to a fever, essentially. There's plenty of causes of that too. Yeah, I like what you did there. I'm saying it's like, Less likely, but obviously, you know, just by not having fever, it doesn't make infection impossible, especially I think when you're older, your immune response just kind of doesn't mount the same way that it did when you're younger. So you can see a lot of people, even like elderly patients with terrible pneumonia that come in that have like a, you know, temperature of like 98 and they're still septic. And so, yeah, always looking at the temperature, I think with like a grain of salt, but yeah, I agree. It does make it less likely. All right. In terms of, you know, further workup, labs, imaging, anything that you guys would want to get? C, CMP. Great. Well, it's a great place to start. Ultrasound? Yeah, I agree. I feel like I'd start with an ultrasound and then maybe consider a CT depending what the ultrasound can or can't show us. Any other labs? Possible infectious causes we could do. An infectious panel as well. Yeah, you could check like EBV, CMV. Backing up, he did it recently have his ablation surgery did he not recently okay just making sure we don't need to think about surgical complication something uh, with that well so let's move on to the next aliquot okay so labs wise we have a cmp that was normal tsh was normal cbc slightly anemic with the hemoglobin of 11.5 white blood cell count at 8 83 percent neutrophils platelets are 207 esr is 42 slightly up from 37 3 three months prior, and then the chest x-ray, which showed stable residual, central right upper lobe opacity. And then they also got a CT scan of the chest with IV contrast, presumably based on this chest x-ray read, which showed interval decrease to near resolution in the previously seen nodules consistent with improving known tuberculosis, interval decrease in size of the consolidative opacity in the right upper lobe, improving mediastinal and hyalur lymphadenopathy. So we can start with the labs. Anything that you were expecting to see or anything that's unusual to you? So pointing us away from infection, which everything kind of has with a normal white count and the TSH is normal, which also points me a little bit more away from something with the thyroid. We should have listed the normal ranges for ESR. Normal is like zero to 22. So this is slightly elevated. And I was just doing some reading 
on like ESR versus CRP, just, I don't just cause I really didn't understand the difference between them. Not super relevant here, but CRP is something that would elevate really quickly, like within hours. And if an ESR is elevated, which is more of an indirect measure of inflammation, that can kind of demonstrate a more chronic inflammatory process. Although I'm not sure Dr. Abrams, if that's like super clinically relevant in terms of distinguishing them, but I thought that that was interesting. I think one way to think of this is that young people get CRPs and old people get worse ESRs because they didn't exist when we were there. But there we go. <laughs> the other, the other maybe more practical thing is, uh, which goes back to his, this, this patient's autoimmune disease. And I, and I think that often people follow the progress of the, the autoimmune disease he has by actually following the ESR. Again, as, as Nick just said, it's, you know, polymyalgia rheumatica is a, it really is a chronic autoimmune disease as opposed to an acute autoimmune disease. And so it's, it, it's, it's, I'm not a rheumatologist, but it is, it is usually a lab that, that rheumatologists will follow. Yeah. I, I think that the ESR would be, would have meant more, at least to me, if, if this patient did not have a history of, of PMR, but considering that he does, it's easily explained by that. Although, you know, it's still an important lab in terms of working this up. And then in terms of, I guess we talked about like leukemias and lymphomas as, as potential or particularly like lymphomas in terms of, of a neck swelling, anything like thinking about the CBC that kind of suggests in favor or against that. I still think there's certain lymphomas that can like present without any like CBC findings. So is it, is it CLL? Maybe I don't know. And then it can progress to like, I think I had a patient with CLL who recently presented with a mass and I, and I was thinking it like we were looking into what possibly it could be. And there's such thing as like Richter transformation, I think one of the lymph nodes where it can lead to a large B-cell lymphoma. And I don't necessarily recall that his labs told me like one way or another, we did feel like a biopsy and a um, bone marrow would have been more helpful in that situation. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that I had always kind of learned that like for the lymphomas, especially so much of what's going on is kind of confined to the lymph nodes. So just having normal lab studies isn't necessarily good enough to kind of rule out some sort of lymphoma process and you always need like a lymph node biopsy and then yeah bone marrow biopsy i think is usually helpful as well okay and we also have these imaging findings which you know talking a lot about the tuberculosis dr abrams do you know exactly how long prior to this he was treated for tb it was it's i think three years previously three years three years okay so what do you guys make of these imaging findings i don't know how long it takes if ever, for imaging to go back to normal after TB, but the fact that it's stable and there's no new findings makes me reassured. Yeah, I think that it can also calcify as well. So I wouldn't necessarily expect the nodules to disappear, especially if they're, decre- if they're decreasing. It makes me think less likely that it's TB, like active TB although I'm not sure what exactly treated TB looks like in, in, in imaging. Yeah, I really like that you guys brought that up. I think that, you know, we learned so much about diagnosing TB and the treatment is right for nine months. And then 
I don't know. We don't really know exactly what it's supposed to look like after. Like, what happens? Does their imaging go back to normal? Does it never go back to normal? Or how normal should it look? So I feel like that's kind of the beauty of like working in a big academic center where we have so many people that we can console. And at least for me, they've all been so nice and so helpful anytime I've had a question. So I think if this were me in real life, I'd probably be looking online. And then if I still wasn't sure, I'd maybe talk to like the infectious disease people and see what they have to say because we see a lot of a lot of TB. So I think that you guys brought up really good points there. So Samir, I, I love the fact that you brought up Richter syndrome because it's something I haven't heard of in such a long time. Whenever you hear, I guess, an old eponym, it, it, it rekindles memories. So, so thank you for that. Again, I, I, as, with, as with the history and physical, you know, I, again, think about pertinent negatives that you find. And we've talked about the labs a little bit. One of the striking things about the CT scan is a pertinent negative on it or certainly something that wasn't commented on and and what do you guys think about that so so is there anything is there anything that maybe changes the way you think based upon what's not here the mass i guess is not extending into the lungs i don't know like if it could but it seems like it's much more localized to the neck oh i agree absolutely and 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 there's clearly a an organ that you guys are at whatever that you guys had talked about earlier that's not commented on at all. Do you see the thyroid in the CT chest? I don't know if it would go up high enough. Yeah, I don't know if they go up high enough, but yeah, but it's certainly certainly not it's, it's certainly not extending down there, right? So it's not a big it's not a big retro sternal thyroid gland or anything like that. All right. So you guys ready for that? Well, I guess before we move on to the next plot, did Either one of you guys or both of you guys wanted to kind of just summarize so far what we have for the listeners or kind of just like assess this patient so far? Sure. So we have a 74-year-old male who presented with a lump anterior, I guess, lower in his neck that's been there for about a month. Uh, he has a history of polymyalgia aromatica, treated tuberculosis, and I believe AFib as well. Um, he's on a number of medications, including immunocompromising medications and also anticoagulants. Um, I think I saw bisphosphonate in there. His labs, for the most part, are unremarkable to me. And his exam, beyond what I've described, is also not remarkable. Awesome. And I know it's still early. We still don't have all the information we need. But if you guys had a guess what you think, just in terms of like, infectious, malignant, inflammatory. What are you thinking is going on with this patient? We're in the malignancy camp right now. So we'll move on to the next aliquot. So we have a CT neck here with IV contrast. It showed a large lobulated slash lobulated peripherally enhancing cystic lesion slash collection in the right level four or five of the neck with mild extension to the supraclavicular region. Another similar moderate to large lesion in the right pyramid line anterior neck superficial and separable from the right strap muscle at the level of the thyroid gland. So what do you make of this? Like this is normally where I'd start Googling and looking at up to date to try and figure out what this CT read means. Yeah, I'm right <laughs> there with you. And actually you had mentioned you mentioned wanting an ultrasound. They they ended up getting a CT. I 
was a little bit unsure which one I would have done as well. I was kind of just reading into like evaluating some of these neck masses. I, I guess so. The thyroid can the thyroid can be evaluated well with ultrasound, but some of the undifferentiated ones. I guess it's more European to use the ultrasound for this. Just what I was reading. The CT is just kind of like I guess what's what's commonly done for like these like really undifferentiated neck masses. I guess they're good at at examining the soft tissues and limb structures of the neck. But I thought, yeah, that was a good point you had brought up, Aaron, about like ultrasound versus CT and didn't really quite know the answer. But yeah, they went with the CT here. Okay. So yeah, I think that what Aaron was saying about just not exactly knowing what to do with this is totally reasonable. We have this like large loculated enhancing collection. The guy doesn't seem like he's super septic, super sick. So less likely to be like a huge abscess, but there's definitely something in there that we probably need to you know, sample or do something to get a little bit more information. What would be your guys' next steps if this was your patient you were taking care of? Him? And the answer can be a consult. I guess I would say, because you can do like an excisional biopsy. I don't know if that's possible versus like a core needle. I think it depends on what our worry is, what this mask could be, but I would want to know what's inside it. <laughs> And a consult, please. Consult ENT and get some kind of biopsy. Yes, you guys are managing this patient perfectly. All right. So patient was taken for a right neck exploration. Finding showed modeled appearance of the anterior neck skin overlying right thyroid cartilage, purulence draining through skin, anterior incision made, purulence and friable tissue encountered, anterior collection drained through this incision. With finger dissection, we were able to access the supraclavicular pocket, but this anterior fluid collection was not continuous with a right level five fluid collection. As a result, a second incision was made through the skin at level five for your stream. So a lot of the surgery words in here, but overall, what do you guys think of this? Are there any words, yeah, any words that stand out to you? Like <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, friable tissue, definitely. And, and I also thought modeled too, just kind of like, what, what, I guess what it is when, what do those words make us think? Necrosed pocket of stuff in his neck. Yeah. I think you guys are right on point. So he's definitely got something going on that maybe now are you thinking, I guess, does this change how you prioritize like malignancy versus infection versus inflammation? I feel like this is more likely to be infection though which can still make sense given that this person was immunocompromised. And we talked about how fever is not necessarily likely or not, it's not necessary in an older person. And especially given his immune compromise, he might not react the same way. That is what allows the infection to linger and abscess to form. So I would feel like at this point, lymphoma is less, or sorry, malignancy is less likely. Yeah, and if he had this infection that was really contained in his neck, he could have that brewing but not have all the systemic symptoms of infection as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. So yeah, we have this 74-year-old guy coming in with what now seems to be like a subacute infection. Are there any, you don't have to name like specific bugs or if there are specific bugs you're thinking of, you can, but like typical versus atypical fungus, bacteria, virus, anything that you're specifically worried about? I'd say with this, like with the purulence that implies more neutrophil 
predominance, I guess, I would be more likely to think something more bacterial over something more viral. Even a, I don't know how superficial it, it is. I don't think I really got that from the imaging or the exploration. But you, I think Aaron was talking about cellulitis, it's like turning into an abscess. So maybe it was more of like a exposure through a cut or something like that. Yeah, my other exposure thought is if this came in through his mouth or like teeth. And I know I think some of the strep bugs can live in the mouth or cause dental infections. So maybe that could be his other source. Yeah, that's a really good point. Next question is, how did he end up with this infection here? Like, that's obviously not the usual place that we see kind of these like huge loculated purulent fluid infections. So it's definitely unusual. And I feel like always just kind of identifying something that's like not what you see typically is the first step. And I think that makes a lot of the, you know, like normal strep, normal staph, cellulitis, abscesses that we see maybe a little bit less likely. And it kind of causes us to maybe broaden our differential and think about some of the bugs that we don't usually encounter. So we have one final aliquot. Anything else that you guys want to add? Yeah, I just want to say one thing. And and when I think of infections, I, I often think, are they from the outside in or are they from the inside out? And because the outside in ones are tend to be, particularly when we're talking about close to the skin, which this is. So the outside in ones, we think of very specific organisms and the Inside out ones, we think of, also we think of specific organisms. And uh, and and you can't, I don't know if, you, if we can necessarily tell from this case. I mean, I do think that, you know, going back and it, 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 maybe it's, maybe it's time to, to re-ask people to, to, to summarize the case because, because I do think, you know, all these little pieces are helpful to maybe putting this sounds like a puzzle together, but, but I mean, that's, that is one place, one place to start. The other thing, and, and I don't know, I, Sabir, I'm going back to you because I, because neurologists are always looking at scans, right? That, that's what it, that's what it, that's what he'll do the rest of your life eventually. And, and we both would go to Google, but does this does this scan does the scan really is there something else about the scan that might tell you something and and the fact that you know it's it and I you know we don't have to go back Megan because we don't want to lose the slides but the fact that it was you know the cystic sort of enhancing lesion does I mean I I start thinking about brain lesions and you know cystic enhancing lesions in the brain and and what that means to me because it may mean different than, than, than other sort of enhancing lesions in the brain. So I, I'll, I'll stop there and, you know, I'll go back to, to you guys. I'll go back to Nick and Megan and, and say, boy, what, is, what does this really mean? And, and, and then have to finish it with, you guys are doing great so far. I mean, this, look how far we've got from the beginning of this case. So, so you're doing great. And I, one more piece of information, right, Megan? That's it. One more aliquot. Yep. Yep. So yeah, this case is really tough and it's definitely not something that's typically seen. And that's kind of why we brought the case here because it's so unusual and it's really interesting, but it definitely puts you guys in the hot seat. So you guys are doing an amazing job so far. We got one last aliquot before we reveal the final diagnosis. We're going to say something then. 
Oh yeah, no, you can go to the next aliquot. I was just going to say in terms of like what this next aliquot brings, it's basically what you guys were talking about in terms of potentially infectious and, and like when you have this and now we, we've done some surgical exploration and now we have a sample and now we want to culture it or find out like what's in that sample along the infectious lines. And so you guys, you guys nailed it. And that's kind of what, what we got in terms of going forward. So for the next aliquot, so they did, they actually ended up doing sputum acid, fast bacilli smear and MTB PCR, which was positive. And then a lymph node acid, fast bacilli stain was also positive. So obviously would potentially make sense with patients, medical history and all of this stuff. But what, yeah, what do you guys think now the diagnosis would be given these positive AFP smears and lymph node stain? I guess disseminated TB, given that he has the history, would be pretty high up there for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if the MTB PCR, unless that can stay positive chronically, I would agree. It seems like a disseminated TB. I do know there's that one other like acid fast bug that's related to TB that can cause the facial issues. I remember it's sketchy, the guy sitting under the tree. So if I just had the acid fast, I would also think the other bug in that TB family that causes the facial specific. I think no cardia is not, that's not the one you're talking about, but I think it stains partially acid fast. I, and then I know which one you're talking about. It's in my head. I know the image is there from Sketchy. Just not the name of the bug. Filamentous. <laughs> guys are close. You're almost right on it. Yeah. Um, does so if we so if we're saying here that that we have a tuberculosis infection, does does that make sense based on like what we know, or are there things that are kind of like misaligned? based on like what we saw about this patient's tuberculosis in the workup and then like where we are now, is anything like interesting to you about that? That might be a hard question. So I can clarify if. I think like if it was disseminated TB, I would expect worsening on imaging and the fact that he has been treated and there was, like you were saying, good follow-up makes me a little bit less like completely sure that it's that. And we know that there's some unnamed things it could still be. Yeah, I think for me, just how clinically well-appearing he was too, if this was a reactivation of his lung TB that spread up his body, I would expect, I would normally expect some coughing, weight loss, some other symptoms to go along with it. (laughs) Yeah, I, I also thought that was interesting too, is that like this patient did not have any evidence of active TB from like his chest scans and also no systemic symptoms, but here we are with a TB infection. And also, like we said, he was adequately treated for nine months. So just goes to show that, yeah, this, there's, I think like a lot of interesting things in this case, but yeah, in terms of diagnosis, I kind of, I kind of think we're scooting around, you know, we're there, but you know, sometimes actually guessing the name of it and stuff is something that I failed to do when I was a discussant because I, but, but I, you know, you, you just still, you still know it. You just can't say, I guess, Megan, you can reveal. All right. So the final diagnosis 
is scrofula. So this is something that I had never heard of before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is cervical lymphadenitis due to recurrent mycobacterium tuberculosis. So I think this case just kind of perfectly embodies the fact that TB can do truly everything. And anytime you have something that doesn't make sense, I feel like they're always testing for TB. But Nick has some great teaching points on this. So we'll move forward to the next one. Yeah, I do have some teaching points. And I know Dr. Abrams also has some some interesting thoughts on on scrofula, but I'll, I'll let you I'll let you go after me here. So just generally those tuberculosis lymphadenitis is what we had in this case. When we have extra pulmonary TB, it's the most common presentation. And when it occurs in the cervical lymph nodes, we we call that scrofula, which previously was known as the king's evil historically, because this is something that used to be much more prevalent and was clearly visible on the outside of the body. Generally speaking, when we have neck masses, we already talked about in terms of differential diagnosis, malignancy, other infections we think about, which you guys, Aaron and Samir had mentioned were like non-tuberculosis mycobacteria. And those are more, those can be more common in children, cat scratch disease, fungal infections, sarcoidosis, and then also bacterial adenitis. So TB we know is more common in resource limited countries and most cases in resource rich countries are from Im adult immigrants. The tuberculosis lymphadenitis is more common in Asian Pacific Islanders and women. We don't really know why, and it can impact patients from all ages. The median age is 40. Most commonly it presents kind of like it did in this case in an isolated chronic non-tender lymphadenopathy. Systemic symptoms are not common, which also would line up with this patient, but they also do occur. So that's not something we can fully rely on. And this, the mass can be present for as long as a year before diagnosis. It's usually three to 10 centimeters and it's usually fixed to surrounding structures and the overlying skin can be erythematous or indurated, which is kind of what we had here. Even less commonly, there can be sinus drainage from it as well. We diagnose it with histopathology along with AFB smears and then we culture the lymph node material. We usually use fine needle aspiration, although there's all kinds of different ways to, to obtain it. We saw surgical exploration in this case. Whenever this is suspected, always image the chest as part of a workup. Microscopically, TB lymphadenopathy is characterized by granuloma formation with caseating necrosis, which is the same that we see in pulmonary TB. In terms of treatment, so just a little bit about this patient, which is interesting is that he actually had previously, he had multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, which had, which had been previously really difficult to, to treat. So for him, they actually started him on RIPE therapy plus, so they actually treated him on five therapies for this. But generally speaking for like a first case of scrofula in HIV uninfected patients, we use RIPE therapy for two months and then we can kind of bring that down to like rifampicin and isoniazid, it. But basically, usually we treat these patients for like six months of therapy. So yeah, I thought those were really interesting. This is a diagnosis that I didn't know very much about coming into this. And so doing these cases is like always, you know, I learn a lot too. So I thought it was interesting. And then I know Dr. Abrams is on the edge of his seat here to tell us a little bit about the history of scrofula, which by the way, I didn't realize how old of a diagnosis this was. When I was reading about it, there were like, you know, papers from the 1800s talking about it in like, and so I thought that was really interesting too. It's definitely a very old disease. 
So let me, I'll start with the history and then we'll get back to the case. But again, I, I want to, before we do that, I want to thank the two of you guys for doing this. You guys were great. And it, it is, it is a rare disease. Oh, you know, if I go back to my own training, it is a disease we talked about. We actually talked about a lot. Probably was there was more, there was more TB that back then. So okay, I got Dr. Abrams, I actually like such a coincidence, but I, there was, they had a case of this in the, in the emergency room over at Cook County, like only a couple of days ago when I was there. Yes. I, and, and you will. Oh, I, yeah, it's out there for sure. <laughs> it's out there. So here we go. So, so th this words, and I, I, I probably pronouncing it wrong. I pronounce, I've always pronounced it scrofula. So it, it appears in the, it appears in medical writings in like the 1500s, but, but the disease has been described, you know, you got to go back to, you know, you know, the Hippocratic period, it's described in Greece and, and actually it's, it's mostly described as a disease of children. So it was a childhood disease and we'll get to that in a second. And, and then, you know, that, you know, the fact that we didn't know about, you know, the germ theory, you know, until the late, you know, 1800s, you know, it, it, it really sort of essentially impossible for people to tie this disease in with, with what we, what we think of as tuberculosis. So anyhow, so in, in Nick led on to this a little bit. So until the 18th century, Doctors really thought that the only way to cure this disease was to be touched by a member of a royal family who, who were thought of, you know, they were thought to have inherited this sort of miraculous power to cure this disease. And, uh, you know, so these touchings, they begin in France. So this, this starts uh, here, I've got here, during, in France during the reign of King Philip I in 1060, and in England during the reign of King Henry I, 1100. And, and this this act of public healing was, it was, you know, by, by these powerful people, it led to this nickname that Nick already mentioned, the king's evil. So initially, the way the ceremony worked is the king, because it was all mostly kings at that time, would, would, would wash the diseased flesh of the person. But Henry VII actually discontinued the practice. And what he did is the ceremony was changed. The king would actually you know, put his hand on the affected person, and then the court chaplain would recite prayers, and they presented the 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 sufferer with this thing called a touch piece, which was an angel on a gold plated coin that was hung around the infected person with a ribbon. <laughs> so, so if you go back and look historically at it, so Charles II, he was believed to have touched almost a hundred thousand people during his reign. And one time they said he touched 600 people during one ceremony. So Louis the Louis the 16th, who was, you know, you know, who got his head chopped off at the end of the French Revolution, he reportedly touched 2,400 suffer sufferers of scrofula over a three-day period in the 1700s. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of Samuel Johnson. So Samuel Johnson, he's the author of this Dictionary of the English Language, which is considered to be one of the you know, greatest achievements of scholarship you know, of all time. He was one of the last sufferers of scrofula to be touched. So as a child, he was taken to Queen Anne and he was touched there. And his, and his stepdaughter, in his biography, his stepdaughter said that he wore his touch crease like the rest of his life. He wore this thing around his neck the rest of his life. So, it, so the historical piece of this, I think, is really interesting. The other thing, and, and again, I'm no expert on this, and 
a lot of scrofula. Remember, if we go back into the you know 1800s, we talk not just about MTB, but we talk about Mycobacterium bovis. Talk about not just Mycobacteria, but we talk Mycobacterium TB, but we talk about Mycobacterium bovis, and that was you know think of it this way as cow TB. And a lot of the reason people think that kids got it was that they drank infected milk. And because the milk passed through their pharynx, that's why it localized, that's why it localized in the lymph nodes around the neck. And so that was, I mean, ultimately that's thought to be the most, that was thought that time to be the most common form. I think scrofula as we think of it today is sort of just as it as it is, and that is it tends to be sort of a disseminated disease from people who have who have pulmonary TB. So at some point, and I think in this guy, it, you know, he had had this this sort of, you know, he'd had a this drug-resistant TB that he had for a long time. And it was thought to have sort of migrated to this area and probably was just there, you know, the entire time and sort of slowly grew until it finally became became visible on him. So again, it's it's a it's an unusual case. I think it's kind of a neat case, and uh, you know I think people who have this actually tend to do very very well because it's so localized in there and they're it's so localized. The hardest thing is taking the treatment more than anything else. I don't know, you guys, Nick, Megan, you guys have anything else to say? Do you know if he required another nine months of treatment after that, Doctor? I I think he's he is currently undergoing treatment, which apparently he's not tolerating very well because you know he's got all sorts of other of other issues, but but he's gonna get I think I think six months was the plan for his treatment. Well thank you, Aaron and Samara, so much. You guys did awesome. There's absolutely no chance I would have gotten this case or been able to discuss it as well as you guys did. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks again to all of our listeners for listening. We hope you all learned something and we'll see everyone back for the next one. Thanks again for listening person, time, and place. See you next time.